Hello, I'm John, the executive producer here at Final Show Films. I got a few notes for you before the show. First, I want to thank you all for watching. We couldn't do what we do or the amount of things that we do without the support of you, the viewer. If you want to support us financially, which we always appreciate, you can go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fsfilms, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us continue this and all the things that we do. I want to give a special shout out to our $25 supporters, Antitonic, Cat Waterflame, and Samantha Bates. Uh, second, I want to let you all know that we here at Final Show Films are planning a little get-together up at Gen Con this year. That's August 2nd through 5th up at Indianapolis. We're going to be up there sort of hanging out, enjoying the con, spending time together. And if any of you guys want to come up and say hi, please feel free. We don't bite unless you want us to. And if you enjoy whatever it is you're about to watch or listen to, be sure to check out our website at finalshowfilms.com where you can find links to all of our other content, both podcast and video. And be sure to follow me at John A. Bates on Twitter for more updates on all of the content we're creating in the future. In the meantime, thanks for watching, and I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critical Thinking, episode 32, where this week we're going to be talking about Critical Role, episode 32, Against the Tide of Bone. Jeremy, did you hear me say the, the episode title this time? Yes. Okay, just wanted to, <laughs> wanted to make sure. I just wanted to make sure. Joining me today is... You can't uh, see what I'm doing right now. But I know oh so well what it is. Uh, I'm John Bates, the executive producer here at Final Show Films, and at Johnny Bates on Twitter. Joining me today is Jack. Hey everybody, I'm Jack, at AltF4Gamers on Twitter. And the man with two middle fingers, Jeremy. <laughs> Hello, I'm Jeremy. I'm at JThomas411Mania. What the, happened, the hell happened to my middle fingers? <laughs> That's what happens when you cross the mob, Jack. <laughs> oh, we're off to a glorious start. I love everything about this opening. <laughs> All right. So, we are talking about Against the Tide of Bone, starring Laura Bailey as Vexalia, Towson Jaffe as Percy, Ashley Johnson as Pike, Liam O'Brien as Vaxeldon, Mercia Ray as Keela, Sam Regal as Scanlan, Travis Willingham as Grog, and Matthew Mercer as the Dungeon Master. Before we get into the actual episode itself, I have to comment that um, everyone has stress dreams. And for I whatever wait to hear where this is going. <laughs> for whatever reason, oh. last night I had a stress dream about this recording, wherein I sat down and started watching the episode and realized that um that um 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 Orion Akaba was back in the ep- was back in the show at this episode. <laughs> And I was like, wait, I thought he already had his last episode. I didn't realize he came back. What's going on? <laughs> I don't know And why. then you woke up and reality was much kinder to you. <laughs> I woke up and reality reasserted itself. But I have no idea why. For whatever reason, I had a stress dream where Tiberius was in this episode. I mean... That says a little more about Tiberius than it does you. Yeah, I was going to say, um... <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Critical Thinking, folks, where we work through our psychological issues about certain certain people and characters <laughs> while discussing Critical Role. Previously on Critical Role, uh, shit got started. 
in yep. um, in in Whitestone, the party of Vox Machina uh, rampaged through two separate mansions. Um, one as a triceratops, like it, was, like it was an episode of Jersey Shore. Yeah, yeah. one one as a triceratops in Scanlan, uh, wherein we we discussed just how many turtles deep this distraction was going, uh, and then the other uh, through I forgotten his name already. Um, Count Tyleri. Count Tyleri's yep. uh, thing where they destroyed, where, where they revealed he was a vampire and destroyed him. The portly vampire trope. <laughs> and then we ended, uh, we ended, I believe, with a cra- with an army of skeletons marching on the town. Yarp. As the downpour continues and lightning cracks across the sky, Vox Machina runs through the muddied streets of Whitestone. Behind them, a seemingly endless horde of skeletal soldiers give chase. Ahead of them, a voice shouts out there, out, out, there, run, aid them. Ten armored civilians appear about a hundred feet away from them, led by Keeper Yenon, who is also wearing armor, holding a shield and a holy symbol of Arathus. Keyleth is unwilling to leave the civilians to fight the undead horde alone and breaks out of Vaxeldon's grasp, running back towards the skeletons. Vax, Percy, and Trinket toss a turn to follow uh, with the bear, uh, with uh, Trinket carrying Vexalia on its back. Keela drops her, her call lightning spell that she had activated previously and begins to conjure a flaming sphere, the second one in this day. Um, which she, I believe she just throws at the skeletons. Um, she kind of whacks on, whacks off. Yeah, it's just like rolling see, around. See, I feel like if you're casting Flaming Sphere and there's a whole bunch of skeletons coming at you, what's implied is that there's going to be at least a single bowling joke somewhere along the line. There should be. I don't know if there was. There was not. Okay. They, they definitely went, uh, they, they went for the Karate Kid instead of bowling. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I was right. Um... <laughs> Vex, uh, uh, Trinket comes up next to Keyleth, and Vex begins, uh, uh, Vex casts Conjure Barrage and launches a barrage of arrows. The first row of skeletons just completely disintegrated by the fire, and then the rest behind of it is just riddled with the splinters of both skeletons and arrows. Um, they collapse in the mud, but there's more skeletons behind them. Um, Keyleth raises a wall of stone, uh, underneath herself, lifting her ten feet in the air and blocking off the street from the skeletons. Um, as the skeletons run at the wall and begin sort of smashing, trying to smash through it. Uh, Scant- still running for the tree line, Scanlan notices that no one else is with him, turns around to rejoin the others. Uh, Percy and Vex climb at the wall, and skeletons begin climbing on top of each other, sort of get at top. So we've got this sort of, uh, this, uh, this is really, um, while not quite to the correct scale, it's the siege of, of, um, Helm's Deep sort of scene here where, you know, the enemy is a endless horde climbing on itself to get to the top of the wall while the allies are on top of the wall trying to keep them off. It's a very sort of a yep. cl- classic narrative setup. Um, Percy uh, begins to uh, pulls out um, his uh, pepper box and prepares to shoot by, for anything nearby and looking around for any of the undead stone giants, but the storm around is affecting his visibility. Um, and as uh, Vax, Vax turns to the approaching uh, uh, civilians and Keeper Yenon and shouts for them to bring fire, uh, to which Keeper Yenon responds, fire won't help, but uh, but I can, and so can she. Uh, as uh, Yenon looks over his shoulder, uh, the villagers part behind them is a small armored humanoid glowing with radiant energy, uh, i.e. Pike Trickfoot in Avatar of Saren Ray form, which, uh, was a, which was a thing that uh, Matthew Mercer came up with to allow uh to to allow for Pike to be in two places at once, basically. Yep. Mm-hmm. This is sort of our um 
sort of the you leaning on the sort of an art imitates life imitates art. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I was going to say, in order to allow Ashley Johnson to be at two places at once. I mean, in order to allow Ashley to Skype in from New York. Yes, in order to uh, Ashley. Was she Skyping in on this episode? Yes, she was Skyping in on this episode, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, they had her up on a uh, up on a monitor with her face on a thing. Um, but yeah, uh, Vox Machina excitedly greets Pike Trickfoot. Uh, Pike, uh, Keyleth worries that Pike has died because Pike is currently in this sort of glowy, radiant, ghostly form. Um, uh, but Pike assures her that she is just fine. And uh, when Vax asks how she got here, she basically she says, "There's not really any time to explain," which is an accurate statement in this particular case because there is a horde of skeletons swarming the wall. Um. Percy takes a shot at one, uh, exploding it, uh, and uh, shouts to Pike that what if whatever she's going to do, she probably needs to do it now, as he continues to fire at skeletons with his pistols. Um, Keyleth continues to send her flaming sphere around, incinerating things. Uh, Vex uses her lightning arrow to smash a cluster of skeletons, and what we have here is a horde scene. Um, in, in movie, this is something that is seen most often in movies and television, um, and video games to an extent. I don't know if it's seen very often in, um, in most narrative, like, like literature with few exceptions. I mean, yeah, you see it. Um, fantasy, obviously more regularly than anything else, but. But it's, mm-hmm. it's basically where the heroes are standing, uh, standing as the breaching wall against a seemingly unstoppable, unending tide of foes. Again, that Helm's Deep scene. Um, this is, I think, most often seen in video games, things like Dynasty Warriors, where there's actually entire genres well, you've got, devoted you've got to this kind of thing. Both Avengers movies at this <clears throat> point. Yeah, yeah, and I was uh, going to say comic, uh, comics, since literature comics are very regularly feature this okay mm-hmm. yeah um and, and it's typically used it's it's typically used to show how you know how heroic the heroes are yep. like that that's 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 mm-hmm. this that is this scene's sole like sole point um, i mean it's 300 syndrome yeah uh, yeah. it, it mm-hmm. is it is the 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 the, the that's, yeah that's 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 probably where the trope originated more or less as yes. far as most people are concerned <laughs> um and and to be clear not 300 the movie the actual 300 spartans in his uh, right. historical right. figures yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> who held yeah, like who held a very small path against a massive force yeah, yes right. mm-hmm. basically uh, if you're the persians stay the fuck out of greece <laughs> it's that's, good that's advice. The big, that's the big takeaway. <laughs> it's really that, yeah. good advice. Yeah, it's you use this kind of a thing to show what sort of odds your heroes are against, and that they persevere through it is a testament to their strength and ingenuity and cunning and wit. Uh, right. It's yeah. and it's a thing that happens. I mean, moderately regularly, or at least there's there's multiple instances of it happening in real life. It's one of those things that we we resonate with because it's not something only that i think <clears throat> hits us in in a very sort of satisfying uh narrative feel but also because most of us have heard these types of stories they're the sort of things that you know you've got your alvin yorks you've got your your chamberlains at gettysburg you've got you know any any number of historical instances uh, or, dating uh the alamo 
Right, yeah. Remember the Alamo. Alamo Alamo is kind of, I mean, like, this is, you're hoping for the one where, you know, they make a stand against overwhelming odds and survive. Alamo was kind of the other end of But it's still qualified. I mean, not a lot of those Spartans survived. No. (laughs) No, but they did hold them off. Right, but they did hold them off and managed to accomplish the objective, whereas the the Alamo was a little more of, oh, God, we're all stuck here. Well, let's just hang on as long as we can. Oh, God, we're all dead. You want want more of... More of 300, less of General Custer for every possible (laughs) reason. (laughs) Jesus fucking Christ. Errol Flynn, I love you as an actor, but they died with their boots on really romanticizes a kind of an asshole. Um, (laughs) Yep. Sorry, go 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 in for the deep cut silver screen references. Oh, that's a good one. That is a really good Mm -hmm. one. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, to be fair, Errol Flynn was also kind of an asshole. But Errol Flynn in real life, yes, no, his his day to day was was yeah. In terms of in terms of Hollywood misogynists, he kind of tops the charts up also, there. Also, yep. also to to clarify a common misconception, the Battle of Thermopylae was not three hundred Spartans. It was about it was about eight thousand. Yeah, uh, no, of course, eight thousand right. Spartans and uh, and Thesians. <laughs> uh, Thebans and Thespians, actually, not the actors, the actual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I love the idea, though, that it was like 300 Spartans, 400 Thebans, and then 700 SGA members. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, uh, granted, the scale on the other end was also much more larger because it was like 2.6 million Persians. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, So, you know. You know. In terms of numeric differentiation, the, roughly the same. Yeah, I mean it, it's kind of more impressive actually when you get the actual numbers of the Persian army. But, um, anyways, the the academies that year were great. They just had a huge long memorial for all the actors that they lost. <laughs> All seven hundred. Se- the, the, the next, the next year, SAG dues were way down. Mm-hmm. It didn't make nearly <laughs> as much money. <laughs> Anyways, back to what we were actually talking about. <clears throat> With a boost from Trinket, Vex reaches up to the uh, up, up to the top of the wall, shoots a lightning arrow. Like I said previously, um, Grog tosses Scalin up onto the wall, um, where Pike is also standing. Uh, he, he, uh, he, um, stutters out some very awkward, uh, uh, um, uh, flirting, uh, to which Pike responds, let's, let's kick some ass, come on, let's go. <laughs> just completely, no, just completely like, wall, no, I'm busy right now, honey, go away. <laughs> I'm just gonna blank on that one. Hard pass, hard pass. Uh, Pike makes a daring leap off the wall, angelic wings shooting from her back, uh, Flap once and then disperse into feathers as she lands deep in the horde. Uh, with her height, all she can really see her are the the sort of the uh, shin bones of all the skeletons surrounding her. Um, as the skeletons reach for her, she clutches her holy symbol and channels Saren Ray's power to use destroy undead, which is a really underrated cleric ability. When you it's 
Well, it's something that has not made the transition from 3.5 nearly as overtly as certain other mechanics, I think. Let me have the opportunity to bitch about this one as someone who plays clerics regularly. Go ahead. Go ahead. So, Destroy Undead is an ability that you don't get until level 7, I want to say. I think you're right. Um, at level 7, most, and I'm not saying all, but most DMs are not putting you up against challenge rating one-half creatures. It's not that it's not usable, or it's not that, that it's not used by players. It's that you rarely have the opportunity to use it. Or at least not to its full capacity yeah. and effect. Turn Undead is a different thing. Turn Undead yes. has a lot of use at, at any possible level. But mm. destroy undead at the level, and it's just the way that it's designed. It's not on 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 DMs. It's not on the way that it is designed. At the levels that you gain access to it, you generally don't need it anymore. Yeah, because uh, mechanically, eight, eighth speaking, level, by is, the way. eighth, uh, uh, close. No, fifth level. No, 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 sorry, fifth level. Eighth level, level. Get, sorry, at eighth level, it gets its, its first boost. Yeah. Right, it gets its first boost at, at eighth. But yeah, no, the way the way fifth edition is designed is it's it's set up in a in a way that honestly doesn't. It's not terribly conducive to this sort of encounter very much, where yeah. you have a large number of fairly weak monsters coming up against your obviously much smaller numbered party um it's and for a now it's it's obviously very possible to make a campaign where this sort of thing would be more of a regular instance and depending on how an individual likes to run their games i always encourage tweaking your campaign to fit your characters rather than forcing your characters to simply meet the arbitrary standards of your campaign. Mm -hmm. um, but that's just because I feel like that's a lot more fun for a lot more people. Uh, your mileage may vary. But yeah, because... And, and this is one of those things, because as I remember coming through, Matt was sort of, as the DM, kind of hinting, trying to hint to... Ashley, the player, that, hey, this is a perfect opportunity for this sort of thing. And it took Ashley a, a little while to catch up on, oh, this is one of those things where I can just kind of firebomb three-point hero land my way in here and totally take out a huge swath of these things. And when it did happen, was very, you know, impactful, uh, both for the players and, and, and the audience as well. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that it's one of those things where, like Jeremy was saying, if you don't incorporate it as an effective tactic it's difficult for a player to Im to immediately react and meet that sort of opportunity unless they know very specifically how things are being designed in a sort of meta-knowledge kind of way mm -hmm. yeah it's a very tricky uh it's a very tricky spot to be able to create for your players yeah uh-huh 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 uh, Which honestly was one of the things that I know it is widely panned by a great amount of the uh, the gaming community. But one of the things that I liked about Fourth Edition uh, was their minion, uh, their 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 minion monsters, um, where you have things that are 
arguably a decent challenge rating uh, for the party, but all of them have exactly one hit point. Yeah, we got taken so out by a pair of snakes on our run through. Uh, <laughs> so. right. Yes, but you it, did. The, the, the idea being behind the, the monster design there that sometimes you want a threatening horde of enemies, but that isn't going to take the party several days of actual playtime in order to wade through. So you give them all one hit point, and as soon as they get tagged, they're dead. But if but the, they, they hit hard enough to where the players have to mitigate for the large amount of incoming damage until they hit them with a couple of AoEs or something. Oh, to, yeah. To not- and I am, a, I am a big fan of that particular style of like, mass right. combat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's just for, it, the for, problem from with a mass Fory combat doesn't... perspective, it works really good. The problem with Fory wasn't the minions, it was everything else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, anyways. Uh, so yeah, uh, P- Pike just decimates a huge section of this uh, skeletal horde uh, with Destroy Undead, because at the level that they're at, and it's pretty effective at killing skeletons. Uh-huh. Scanlan jumps off uh, as well, uh, but falls a bit <clears> short. And I... Is this the first time we see Crotch Lightning? No, Crotch Lightning was episode one when he was killed it the one? Hydra thing. Yeah. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. I yeah, keep... yeah. Crotch, Light- Crotch Lightning's been around since the beginning. I keep forgetting when Crotch Lightning came into play, but we get some Crotch Lightning um, as as Scanlan pelvic thrusts a few skeletons to death. Um... Let's do the time warp again. <laughs> Uh, the spell barely misses Pike and slams into a row of seven skeletons, destroying five of them and heavily dam- damaging the remaining two. On the other side of the wall, skeletons con- on the other side of the wall, skeletons converge on the party, but are being repelled by Yenin's group. Uh, he shouts to the party, uh, "Basically, don't worry, we got this," um, and jumps into the fray with his shield and holy symbol in hands. Because some NPCs have cl- have character class levels, <laughs> not all, but some. Yep. Um, <clears throat> as the surviving skeletons converge on Pike, Vax jumps off the wall to, uh, towards her. Three of the skeletons reach for Pike and take swipes at her, but the cleric's shield and armor easily deflect the attacks. Vax decks one of the skeletons with his right fist, which has a which has a symbol of Saren race under the glove. Um, and this is where we this is the nice little callback that we had to Vax's uh-huh. uh, uh, Van Helsing moment as he tries to sort of like suit up for battling the undead, he then finds out, to his chagrin, that it takes more than just a holy symbol to do radiant damage. Uh, <laughs> as the skeleton shrugs this is, off. This his is flesh. his Benny from the Mummy moment. Yeah. <laughs> this is that moment in every World of Darkness game where uh, a civilian eventually uh, make, like realizes that a vampire is a vampire. It starts like holding up garlic and, cro- and a cross at them, and the vampire just starts laughing <laughs> unless that vampire is has a particular flaw true right. but most vampires just start laughing yeah <laughs> right because because unless you've got a fucking huge true faith merit <clears throat> nobody's gonna give a shit <laughs> yep. welcome to the world of darkness <laughs> <laughs> welcome to the world of darkness um well. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the world of darkness. Nobody gives a shit. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. That is entirely an accurate way to describe this setting. Grog (laughs) leaps into the fray with his hammer, smashing about left and right. Um, 
and they they make pretty short work picking off the remaining skeletons. Uh, however, as the as lightning flashes off of the distance, Vax sees one of the undead giants slamming its fist into something other on the other side of the town square, and out of the corner of his eye, he sees a second giant to the south. Uh, Vax urges the uh, party to go finish off the giants while they have Pike back with them. Percy calls out to keep her in and asks if he could hold the attack until morning. The older cleric is clutching his holy symbol as he charges towards skeletons, casting destroy on dead, disintegrating them instantly. Uh, and- he- he looks. One thing that I want. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, he looks over his shoulder and says, and 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 unleashes one of one of like five really good one-liners that Matt pulls out of nowhere tonight. Um, <laughs> yeah. Till morning. Why wait till morning? We're fighting now. <laughs> Sorry. What were you going to say, Jack? All right. So one thing that you'll, I think, uh, most DMs and players of tabletop games will find is that the system tries to make mechanical allowance for what in other mediums are simply narrative events. Do you remember if when Vax sees those giants, was that was that the result of a perception check? That I think rolled? it was. I think it was. Okay, right, yeah. Now, most narratives require the protagonists to occasionally notice things. Um... And it can really stymie your your narrative progression if characters in your tabletop RPG don't have the mechanical num- numbers on their side in order to notice things. Mm-hmm. One and and there are several different solutions to this. Um, my favorite is if you need the characters to notice something, they notice it. Yeah, don't make them roll. Don't yeah, just risk, be like, right. Don't risk <laughs> yes. that one. Right, exactly. You know, if if something needs to be picked up on for the the narrative to progress, and you're writing a novel or a screenplay or something, it's very simple. You write that they notice it. They notice it. The story moves on. For DMs and and storytellers who are running games, though. This is, in my opinion, one of the the key mechanics that can really fuck up a narratively run game in that if your characters don't notice things, that really slows down the progression of your plot. Because that is just one thing that creative uh, producers do by default is put in things to progress the story that does require somebody to notice them. <clears throat> so yeah. If you need people to to see something happening, don't make them roll for it. Just let them see it. Anyway, yep. that was my little advice for the day. Yeah, I tell you, I, 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 for personally, basically, whenever I, I, if there is no chance of them not seeing a thing, then they don't need to roll for it. If there's a yeah, chance right. of failure, that's when you roll. Mm-hmm. I do. Now, as a caveat to that, I do like. If it is a large group and they're all together, I do like to make them roll even if it's something that because with that many people, somebody will roll probably high enough. And I like the disparity of certain people noticing something and certain people not. Yes, that can be like really you can fun. you can play the odds a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can just honestly, in my case, if it's something they have to notice, it's just whoever rolls highest. Yes, makes the DC. You know, it's yeah. not. It's not somebody has to roll a fifteen. It's just everybody roll. All right, 
five of you did shitty and one of you got a nine. Well, that's the highest number. So whoever got the nine, you see fill in the blank. That's everybody that's, else. That you're dumb when, and distracted. Uh, that is when DMs f- uh, trot out the tried and true phrase of, well, it wasn't a high DC anyways. Uh, for real. So <laughs> which is because yeah, which, it was an abstract DC. Exactly. <laughs> so dungeon masters out there. I want to point out a thing that that that. Just about every dungeon master who remotely knows what they're doing does. Nobody really likes to talk about it publicly, but everybody knows that they do it, and everybody is generally okay with it. Most of your players know you do it too. Fudge fudge DCs, fudge dice roll. Well, we don't talk about it publicly because it breaks the illusion. Now, this is something you don't want to do it, and you don't necessarily want to do it in combat or something like that where characters' lives are on the line, unless it's, oh shit, the party's about to wipe, I don't want them to wipe here, maybe I'm just going to drop some hit points off this, this NPC, something like that. Or, this fight is way too easy for what I was expecting, let me add some hit points here. Or add some but, mechanics. Yeah, <laughs> but like... For example, if you're if you're running a game with six players, the odds of one of them not at least one of them not rolling a ten or above on like a perception roll are really low. So if you set a DC of asterisks, this does not reign true for final show film streams. <laughs> this is accurate. Um, <laughs> but let's say you set a DC for 15 for, for a perceptional and you have, have that written in your notes and you have this group of six players roll a perception roll. And the problem is it is a final show film thing. So the highest roll you get is an 11. All of a sudden your DC should be 10. Yeah. And your players never knew the difference. It's okay to do that. Uh-huh. Yep. Just don't tell them you did it. Just don't tell them you did it because... Don't, don't right, be the, per- they, don't be the person... Don't be the person like a smart-ass wet blanket. Well, yeah. not, not even that. Don't Also, don't be the person that goes, eh, it doesn't matter. Yes. Because it... it oh, God, yes. It, it does matter. What a way to destroy the sense of stakes in your game. Yeah. Yep. Like, um, even if you're softening all the blows for them, don't tell them you're softening all the blows for them. Yeah, exactly. Anyways. Vox Machina splits into two groups, because this always works well. And from the... <laughs> <laughs> this Saint Shadowrun. <laughs> <laughs> Percy Keyleth and the twins in one, Grog and the gnomes in the other. Sorry. I'm laughing because I've had a recent experience with the party splitting up. Oh, did you guys die on Tuesday? No one tells me. I'm so I talking know. about you assholes in, on Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. Uh... The Big and Smalls group, as dubbed by Scanlan, will head to the south, and the other group will head to the east. Vex takes some of the rest of the traces of Grog. Percy tells them all to meet near the western wall of Wysoda when they're done. 
party makes their way around the sun tree, and they see tracks left in the mud by the skeleton army, and hear shouts of combat commands throughout the city. They split their party, at the, and that's where they split off, going in their two separate directions. Grog, carrying the gnomes on his shoulders, um, he feels that Pike is lighter than normal, and that her presence has a slight vibration, which is because she's in Saren Ray avatar mode. She's, she's, she's in energy form. She's in energy mode. She's gone Super Saiyan. Um, she's a force ghost. She is. Uh, he charges to the bottom of the town square, almost slipping in the rainwater, but manages to catch himself, passing by several streets, before seeing another patch of skeletons off to the left, fighting against five villagers. Several bodies of villagers lie on the ground, one of which is still alive, and dragging himself towards the Goliath and calling for help. As Grog approaches with the gnomes, they see the man's face is covered in blood, and his side appears to have been torn through by a spear. Grog lowers Pike to the ground, she begins to cast cure wounds on the wounded man. Uh, looking up at the radiant gnome, the man mistakes her for an angel and says, no, no, not yet, not yet. <laughs> which is, oh shit, the Valkyries came. God damn it, no! Uh, she holds out of his face and spouts down at him as the energy of Saren Ray flows through his body and starts closing his wounds. Um, he looks at Pike, calls her an angel. Pike tries to deny it, but he reaches forward to thank her. Um, Grog tells him to run, uh, to which he responds, I intend to, grabs his sword and heads back into the fray. Which is the second really good one-liner of the night. <laughs> We're desperately hoping that he does not get immediately cut down in the next 15 seconds. It would have been hilarious, though. It would have been hilarious. Like, that would be be what happens in one of my games. Yeah, right. It's like, I intend to. He runs back in, and just immediately, done. (laughs) (laughs) And just an axe comes out of nowhere, caves in the entire side of his ribs. (laughs) Yeah, he ain't walking that one off. (laughs) But I'm mean to NPCs, so... Right. Anyways. Grog says that he likes him, places Pike back on his shoulder, and they continue charging southward. Uh, They pass through several more streets, the building's all dark and closed down, before they hear the sound of a large, heavy mass hitting the ground. Large, heavy mass being my Metallica cover band. Um... (laughs) As they turn the corner, they see three stand... They see, uh... Uh, three rebels standing with a pile of wood. Three standing rebels with a pile of wood are killed at a giant at a giant's feet. The giant is nearly untouched and seems to have caught the villagers unprepared. Swing its club at them as they decide whether whether to run or fight. Uh, Scanlan jumps off his grog shoulder, pulls out his wand of magic missiles, and fires eight darts at the giant, causing some of the <laughs> flesh to fall off and expose bone. The giant turns its head to face him, aware that it is now flanked. Uh, Scanlan inspires grog, who then rages and smashes the giant. Um, this fight is actually really quick. For for it being the smaller of the group, they decimate this giant really fucking quick. Yep. Because I think it's only three rounds. I think it's... I think so, yeah. Grog comes in, smashes, Pike casts Guiding Bolt, uh, Guiding Bolt, uh, um... Scanlan casts lightning bolt. Grog smashes again. Uh, cutting words. It's amazing how fast a, a, a fight can go down when nobody misses. <laughs> yep. Uh, cutting words happens, and then Pike hits it with her mace of disruption, which then kills it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. maces mm-hmm. maces of disruption, yo. Pike, right, Pike, yeah, Pike. No. Dis- disruption weapons against undead. 
vicious. Mm-hmm. Pike lands the killing blow and Scanlan faints. That's what happened. Yeah, that, that's how this one... Right, yeah. <laughs> it's really fucking quick. Just boom, 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 gone. Which is a testament to how powerful D&D characters can get uh-huh. in the right circumstances. Um, the soldiers pull their wounded friends to their feet, um... And they head off, uh, they, they begin uh, setting fire to the corpses so they don't come back as zombies or skeletons. And then Grog, Pike, and Scanlan head off to meet with the group. The rest of the group rushes uh, through the town square, uh, past the town square, through the rain, um, and end up by the temple of Pelor, where the zombie giant has been pushed back by civilians and is swinging at them with a large metallic weapon. Vax goes stealth, and Vex places her hunter's mark on the giant when she's within range. The party runs in through the gates of the graveyard to see that all the graves have been exhumed. They get the feeling that this is where a lot of the undead came from. Although someone had to have given them weapons and armor, theoretically. Although, in D&D, really, it seems like everyone is buried with weapons and armor. I mean, I've played Skyrim. Literally everyone is buried with weapons and armor. (laughs) It's true. And when I get my new video card, I'm probably going to be playing Skyrim VR on stream. Apparently it's really good. Anyways. Um, not that that has anything to do with what we're talking about right now. <laughs> Tune in soon to see John's computer blow itself up on stream. Nah, it'll be fine. I'm getting a new, I'm getting a new video card soon. Uh, anyways. Blah. Words are coming out of my mouth. Six guards remain, fighting against the giant, pushing it, uh, pushing it back towards the temple. These civilians doing much, well, these are guards, not civilians for one, doing much better at dealing with the giant than the, uh, than the other group were. Um, Percy pulls out bad nudes, aims at the giant. Um, Did you just say bad nudes? No, bad news. Okay, because it sounded like you said bad nudes. <laughs> I mean, he could also be pulling those out. Uh, I'm sure those would certainly do an amount of psychic damage. I hate you both. <laughs> <laughs> Victory! <laughs> It's really bad when you put Jack and me in a room together, and we're going to be in several rooms together this uh, this August uh, August second through fifth at Gen Con. <laughs> if any of you out there listening want to come, uh, have us tell you really bad jokes to your face. <laughs> well, Aaron's eyes, and I'm a dad. <laughs> well, Aaron's eyes literally roll out of their head. Well, I don't think yep. I don't I don't think Aaron's going to be there. I think. Um, is Aaron not making? I don't think Aaron's I don't know. I'm Aaron. not, but I don't know about Aaron. Well, we'll find out. We'll have anyway. We'll, we'll, we'll figure that out later. <laughs> but either way, somebody will be there to roll their eyes out of their sockets. <laughs> um, they take this one down. Like I said, not as fast as the others, but still pretty fast. Uh, this one I think takes about four or five rounds. Uh, just between Percy and they have a they have a very nice shadow of the Colossus moment. <laughs> yeah, between Percy Vex shooting it with a gun, mm-hmm. Vex and Vax climbing it with arrow. Or sorry, Vex Vex putting arrows into it and Vax using them to climb up. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and they eventually and uh, Keyleth uh, Keyleth using with a creative use of heat metal on on uh, Vax's daggers, which. Hurts him, but also theoretically would have would have theoretically hurt the giant too. That's one of those oops awkward moments um, that we get yep. from Keyleth. It's like, oh yeah, that's right. I'll heat metal the daggers that my ally is holding. 
Because well, Marisha is one of those players that some people hate, but I absolutely love, who mm-hmm. looks at the text of what a spell can do and says, all right, so could you conceivably incorporate it to cause this possibly not intended effect? Oh, and then actually tries it, you know? And Matt is the type of GM that I think does a very good job of saying, Okay, sometimes that will work, but sometimes it will bite you in the ass. Hmm. Yep, it's true, and I love that. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, mm-hmm. I am. I am that kind of spellcaster. However, I will remind people: read your spells. <laughs> Just read them. Yeah, read all your spells because sometimes you'll get them wrong. I get them wrong a lot. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> Vex turns to Keyleth and goes, "What the fuck?" <laughs> <laughs> as Vax drops his daggers. Because Vex is like, what are you doing? Keyleth uses Grasping Vine to grapple the giant and pull it down. Uh, pers- uh, and, and yeah, and then they, they just beat on the giant until it's gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Afterwards, Vax sticks his hands in a puddle to soothe the burns on, on them. Um, Va- Keyleth sees what Vax is doing and is momentarily confused. <laughs> because she doesn't realize what she did. See, this is when failed perception checks are fun. Yep. And Vax, uh, she casts, she, they eventually figure it out, and she casts cure wounds on him and, and heals his hands. Um, Vax walks between them uh, in order to uh, sort of interrupt their, their, their them moment, um, because Vax is nothing if not petty. Right. And, mm-hmm. and goes off to talk to the, uh, and she and Percy goes off to talk to the guards that were fighting the giant. <clears throat> Um, va- uh, va- while they're talking to the guards, Vax uh, investigates the open graves and sees that all the coffins are present, but they have been opened up. He finds an ornamental dagger that has a golden sheen and gems encrusted into it in one of the coffins. Vax encourages his brother to jump down into the grave and get it, and Vax does so. Picking up the dagger to examine it closer, it's lightweight and purely ornamental, and there doesn't appear to be any enchantments on it. Vax returns the dagger to its place in the coffin, pats it, and climbs back out of the grave. Because he's not a grave robber, we find yeah, out. We discover we might we might be we might be social degenerates, but we're not grave robbers. Which is definitely a, a difference between most adventurers. Most adventurers, fucking grave robbers. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, it's practically it's practically like the second item in their resume. It's like you know, uh, good at killing monsters, defending towns, rescuing damsels, and. Uh, Pillaging archaeological sites. Pillaging, Mm -hmm. yeah, pillaging graves. It's like, that's sort of the bullet list of of items on an adventurer's uh, CV. So, the party decides to head west to meet up with their companions. Vex takes out a bit of dust of traitlessness, shears his grog, but finds that it is turned to plain sand. Apparently, its magical properties only apply when it is fresh out of the bag. I will now repeat what I said previously about spellcasters reading their spells. Adventurers, read your magical item descriptions. (laughs) Legit. Nevertheless, together with Vax, uh, Vax and Percy, uh, together with Vax and Percy manage to lead the group on a path that reduces the tracks they leave. Why they're concerned about leaving tracks when they just felled a giant, I'm not 100% certain, but, you know, always cautious, ever vigilant. Uh-huh. 
The rain continues to pour heavily. At the western wall, Grogs get on a pike huddle in a bush to try and stay dry. Eventually, the rest of Vox Machina arrives and rejoins their companions. Scanlan asks the other group if they defeated their giant, which they, and when they confirm they did, the bard tells them how, that Pike defeated the other one, giving her all the praise in dealing the killing blow, which she did actually, yes, deal the killing blow. Uh-huh. Keith tells Pike that they missed her so much. Scanlan hugs, hugs his fellow gnome. Her glowing translucent form feels like hot gelatin, and her hair blows in a mystical breeze. Keyleth asks how Pike got to Whitestone and how she knew they would need they needed her, and she tells him that she's been working very hard in restoring the temple of Serenray in Vasselheim and thinking about her friends constantly. She felt a uh, heaviness when receiving visions, and also she had a letter from Alora Vicer back at Iman. Uh, oh, you know. You, you know. <laughs> little things. The usual. <laughs> little bird told me. <laughs> and by bird, I mean Alora. <laughs> <laughs> and by bird, I mean a fucking powerful sorceress. Is she a sorcerer wizard? I can't remember. Wizard. She's a wizard. I think she's an abjuration wizard, yeah. Mm-hmm. She's a wizard. Gilmore's a sorcerer. <clears throat> yeah. Pike asks if the party is making a decision in White... Is, it asks if the party is making a decision in Whitestone. A silly question. They don't make decisions. Uh, <laughs> they have reactions. That's yeah. what we do here. Scanlan tells her that they've been making a lot of decisions, especially Percy. Keyleth asks Pike to look to take a look at Percy, but Grog cuts her off, saying that Percy is fine, and Pike can check it out after the Briarwoods are defeated. Percy starts to say something, but stops. Grog asks Percy how he asks Percy how he's feeling. The gunslinger admits that if Pike wasn't here, he would say he was fine. He asks the cleric how how she thinks he is, because in addition to everything else, clerics are also psychologists. Um. Pike says that most of the heaviness and vision she received were about Percy. She knew that Vox Machina was in a very dark place. Yeah, I wonder why. <laughs> yeah, no. It was in a very dark place, metaphorically speaking, uh, and prayed for Saren Ray to send her to her friends. She is here to help in whatever way she can, and as she says that, her form flickers for a moment. He has get a sense that this is only Saren, that, that, that it is only Saren Ray's power that is keeping her here. Kill asks Pike how much longer she will stay with him, but the gnome isn't sure. Percy says that he'll lead the party to the secret entrance near the west side of the castle. Vex tells Pike about the black smoke that has shrouded Percy from several occasions. The cleric agrees to take a look at him once they are somewhere safe. <clears throat> because, you know, when, you're, when, you're, when your gunslinger starts spouting black smoke and it's not from his guns, you should probably see a cleric. Yes. Mm. Generally speaking... However, however, you usually want to wait for the medical examination until you're out of the hordes of undead that are threatening you on all sides. Mm. You know, it depends if you think there might be a if you think there might be a thing where um you know that black smoke might be related to the hordes of undead. You might want to do that in medical examination a lot sooner. Uh, Fox Machina begins heads southward, leaving the city uh, leaving the city to travel through the forest on the outskirts. The trees shield them from most of the rain, but it still drips down on them from the leaves. They travel west for about five minutes, and then Percy and Vex and Vex lead them northward. After about thirty minutes, the rain subsided a little bit, and they begin to hear the sounds of native cat-like creatures that live in the trees. As they walk, Vax tells Pike about everything he's seen happening to Percy since the Whitestone, from the smoke to his violent actions to his persistent cough. After another hour of travel and letting per- and letting Pike know what's up with Percy, they make their way out of the dense trees and see the castle in the distance, an ominous dark shape outlined against the clouds. Very familiar with this area, Percy leads the group to the edge of the mountainous platform that the castle is on. Searching for about 20 minutes, he's unable to find the secret entrance. Percy, uh, secret entrance. Uh, Percy describes the entrance to the others, a cavern opening hidden by a few bushes, and the twins start searching as well. Grog warns that this could be an ambush set up by the Briarwoods. Ten minutes of searching later, they still haven't found the entrance. However, Vax notices a portion of the mountainside that is comprised of looser rock than the rest. 
He calls Rog over, meaning that he is not strong enough to move the rocks. Um, and, you know, asks uh, asks Grog with a compliment to his beard uh, to help move them. Yep. <clears throat> Grog, move, Grog begins moving the rocks out of the way without any difficulty, and as the smaller rocks are moved, a couple of crushed bushes become visible underneath. Percy recognizes that the bushes are in the place where the <coughs> should be. He tells the party that he thinks this might be the secret entrance. Keyleth inspects the pattern of the rocks fell in, and interprets that a localized rock slide was intentional, presumably in order to block off the exit. Grog moves the larger rocks out of the way, revealing a small tunnel, and Scandalous agrees to be the first to go in. It's pitch dark inside the tunnel. It's pitch dark inside the tunnel. The ground is very dry compared to the rainy exterior, and the tunnel seems musty and disused. The smells musty and disused. Uh, so here's the thing about about environmental description, which yeah. Matt has done some really good ones, especially like the the woods during the rain and that sort of thing. There is definitely an art to a good setting description. Um, and you can find all sorts of manner of advice on how to, how to do good setting descriptions out there on the internet, uh, incorporating the various senses, you know, don't just say what it looks like, but also what does it sound like? What does it smell like? That sort of thing, you know, mm-hmm. um, as, as he did for the, the tunnel as well. My general advice for that sort of thing is <clears throat> granted a lot of sort of standard high fantasy tabletop RPGs happen in a lot of what you might call semi-exotic locales but if it's something like rainy woods wait for a rainy day and then go walk around the woods and just like take some time to experience these settings and scenarios you know yeah finding a a dry musty set of secret entrances into a into a castle is a little outside most of our budget absolutely but dry musty that describes most of our parents' basements, I would say. Yeah. You know, and you can you can find a lot of good stuff. And obviously, you know, reading other people's descriptions, seeing how it's composed is great. But I always, 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 always recommend go experience it firsthand as much as you can. And this you know? helps yeah. for this helps for not just DMing, but also any form of writing or creative endeavor. You want yeah. to have some experience for what you're trying to represent, because that way you'll be able to give it that that, that little bit more of authenticity. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes you'll be able to come up with things that really stick with your uh, with your players. You know, for instance, the sound of of, of uh, a balloon being filled with meat. I'm 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 interested to hear when and how often you experience that personally. When I was working at Kroger, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, the meat I know that does make sense. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. Smells like werewolves. Mm-hmm. Yep. Anyways, uh, but yeah, this there's there and and the more the the more you have experience with things, the more you can you can then sort of pick out specific things uh, to to in, to sort of give your players a sense of immersion with their world. For instance, like you could say. Oh well, you get a bottle of wine, or you could say you get a bottle of aged wine that has sort of a strawberry smell, and uh, each each uh, draft from the bottle goes down just a little bit smoother than the last, which gives you a lot more sense of what this wine might be. Right, lets you occupy the world a little bit more. 
Uh-huh. And that's just a couple of details for a glass of wine. Anyways. Vaxling's down the tunnel. Uh, down towards the tunnel and asks Scanlan if he thinks the press of the party could get in there for the night. Scanlan explains that he can't see anything and asks for a torch. Don't gnomes have dark vision? I, uh, do, they, do they only have low light vision? Or do they actually have dark in vision? 5e, no, in there's fi- no such thing as low light vision. In 5e, there's oh, no that's such right, thing that's as right, low light vision anymore. Uh, that is a really good question. Hold on just one moment. Yeah, they have dark vision. Hmm. Yeah. Read your racial abilities. <laughs> um, blah. Vax hands in the flame tongue dagger. dagger. With the light from the dagger, Scanlan can see that the tunnel is about six feet tall and widens to about eight or ten feet. About fifteen feet in, the tunnel curves out of view. Scanlan says he doesn't know if there are any guards in the tunnel. Pierce and Keyleth point out that if somebody blasted the opening closed, they wouldn't need to guard it. Vox Machina enters the tunnel, and Keyleth ignites her hands to provide more light. Vex investigates the tunnel. It doesn't find any footprints. It has been quite some time since anyone else has been here. Uh, Scanlan tries to sneakily put the flame tongue dagger into his back pocket, but Vax looks right at him as he does so. Thoreau reaches out, grabs him by the wrist, and takes his dagger back as Scanlan, for whatever reason, begins his bait, uh, his spate of trying to steal from the party. Has it been made apparent as to why he's doing this yet, or is it just something that he tries to do? As far as I'm aware, it's simply he likes stuff, but in a slightly different vein than Vex likes stuff. Right. You know, Scanlan wants things that he thinks are cool, whereas Vex wants things that are worth a lot of money. So, yeah. Scanlan wants to be cool. Hmm. Yeah. And if he sees something that he thinks that would make me look cool or I would feel cool having that, he will occasionally to frequently just try and steal it. And most often gets caught. Most of the time he does because Not he's, he's most right. because he didn't he didn't multi-class into rogue. Hmm. Anyways. Not that not that bards need to multi-class. Not usually. They can pretty much do everything. Anyways, uh, Grog grabs some boulders and covers the entrance to the tunnel, and Pike summons a Guardian of the Faith to patrol for a very short period of time because Guardian of the Faith doesn't last that long. Um, (laughs) As they uh, prepare to take a long rest here in the tunnel. Pike goes over to Percy and asks how he is. The human mentions his cough, and Keyleth explains that she checked it out previously and determined that it wasn't natural or disease-related. Pike takes a moment to examine Percy, looking at his features, checking his pulse, and generally getting a sense of his life force. The gunslinger's eyes are sunken, his jowls are shadowed, and, his tw- and he is twice as pale as he normally is. That's fucking pale. Actually, no, Guardian, Guardian of Faith lasts for eight hours. Hmm? Does it last for eight hours? Yeah, you're thinking of uh, Spirit Guardian, I think. <laughs> Which is different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Percy at this point has to be like Seamus and Cesaro pale. Yeah, the, probably. For the wrestling fans out there. Um, which is really fucking pale. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> she feels an unrest to his energy, and although there is no physical illness or disease, there is something unsettling about his presence that Pike has never sensed before. Pike reaches up and grabs Percy's face, closing her eyes and concentrating as she casts Greater Restoration. 
Her hands begin to glow even more vibrant than the rest of her form. She puts so much energy into the spell that her legs dissipate and vanish. Percy feels warmth rush through his entire body. For the first time in weeks, he feels a moment of serenity. Closes his eyes and feels as though he's staying next to Pike in a void of darkness. Pike senses a seed of darkness within Percy, and in their imaginative space, she thrusts her hands out and grabs onto it. The darkness fights in her grip, but she pulls it out and feels it burn and dis- Percy and Pike open their eyes and breathe in succession with each other. The energy fades from Pike's hands as the rest of her body rematerializes. This is another example of using spells in in, in unique ways. Um, ways that don't necessarily read as they are in the book. Mm-hmm. Always be prepared to improv with certain aspects of the game. Yep. Sometimes and you- I find that there's a, there's a lot more improv flexibility, or at least I feel like there should be a lot more improv flexibility for a stronger spell. Because it's more of an investment on the part of the character, and they're they're burning more of their resources. So I feel as a GM, it's it's good to frequently reward that that willingness to sacrifice. Also, sometimes clerics will just try to talk to their god, uh-huh. and you, you don't always have to answer, but it's nice when you do. Yeah, yeah. It's also a really good opportunity to give, you know, to give some go left instructions from God. (laughs) (laughs) You're going the wrong way, you dumb fuck. Uh, Only my warlike patrons are good for that, too. (laughs) Yeah, they are. (laughs) Um... <clears throat> Blah. The energy fades from Pike's hands as the rest of her body rematerializes, and Percy feels less corrupted than he did earlier, although he still looks a little sickly. Scanlan compliments Pike. Grog asks if she can help with his aching neck, but Vex takes care of it by pounding her fist against his neck. <laughs> as you do. Some calibrative surgery, some, some recalibration to the spine. Um, Pike once more asks Percy how he feels. He says he feels better and more like himself, although he is still coughing. They're asking if she wants to hold on, if, if he, if some part of him wants to hold on to this corruption, Percy isn't sure, but he thinks he might, since it has, since he has yet to complete his revenge. While the rest of Vox Machina was distracted by watching this, Vax slipped away and began heading down the tunnel. He does look around and notice his absence. Uh, Grog goes to sleep. Vex is angry. Vax walks around, walks around the curve and about 60 feet down the tunnel, which begins to straighten out, um, and then curves again to the left, then to the right. Over the earrings, Vex asks her brother, where the fuck are you? He doesn't answer. Vax gives an exasperated groan, and Vaxeldon continues down the tunnel. After another 60 feet, he comes to a section where the dirt stops and becomes smooth stonework, looking like a broken portion of wall. There appears to be an entrance. <coughs> As I die. <clears throat> oh. Ah. There appears to be an entrance, but it is covered by a stack of assorted objects. Vax sits down. Are you down still and- dying? Yeah, no, I'm fine. Curse is foiled again. <laughs> Were you hoping to take over? <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm like fourth in the line of succession if, here. If you want to talk, be my guest. There's still a lot to go through. <laughs> I was talking about final show films as a whole. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, anyways. Uh, Vax sits down and closes his eyes, listening for a minute. He doesn't hear anything, so he heads back to the group and sneaks up behind Vex, startling her. Keyleth asks where he went. He tells her that he was just ten feet around the corner. Vex glares at her brother and then lays down to go to sleep. Percy wants to charge his diplomacy club before turning in, but doing so would make a lot of noise, so Vax uses two pebbles to, uh, uh, uses two pebbles to, block, to block Grog's nostrils while he's asleep. 
causing Let the prank war continue. Vax is awoken by this and punches Grog in the shoulder, causing him to wake up and see the stone out more than it's Vax in the temple. Which is, you know, just a series of bullshit happening before going to sleep. Prank Although I, I, I have personal experience with, with rocks being lodged in nostrils, so, you know. Not it's... fun. My sister sneezed it out into her Cheerios one morning. It was great. (laughs) (laughs) Be careful of what your kids shove in your nose when they're under the age of four. That's all I have to say. Vox mocks him against settling down for sleep. Vax stays awake (laughs) to keep watch. Keyleth asks him if he's going to sneak off again. When he says he won't, she tells him the rest of them will notice when he disappears. He points out that that they really don't. I'm sorry, the rest of them notice when he disappears, and he points out that they really don't. Nevertheless, he promises not to wander off while they sleep. Vax sits and watches his companions sleep. After about 20 minutes, he nudges Percy to wake him up, and Vax asks him what he really knows about this thing that causes the smoke, but the gunslinger says he doesn't know anything about it, because the last time was different from the first time. He says he felt more like himself and less like he was being drawn somewhere. Although he was still not entirely himself, he felt like he had managed to contain it a bit, and he thinks that maybe he can keep it under check. Um, they have a short little conversation about sisters and the uh, relative coolness of having a sister. Given that Percy has recently rediscovered that his is actually still alive, despite having seen her. Well, it's it's kind of a comic books. Unless you see the body, they're definitely not dead. But you know, it was it was it was it was a very close thing there. Grog lets out a fart in his sleep to interrupt the conversation. Uh, and Vax asks for a bit pinch of Percy's black powder, which he uses to draw a, test- a pair of testicles on Grog's forehead. Um, Vax stays awake for another because two hours. why wouldn't you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Vax stays awake for another two hours to keep watch, but then when nothing happens, he goes to sleep as well, instead of, you know, waking somebody up for uh, second watch. <laughs> this is <laughs> not how you watch. Yeah, Guardian of Faith is still up and around, remember, so... Still! Yes, because nobody can cast Dispel Magic. (laughs) The party begins to wake in the cold morning air after Percy has some uh, strange and disturbing dreams. Um, The party begins to wake in the cold morning air and cut to watch a sleeping on solid rock, as you do. Um, Oh, also, there's a voice in Percy's dreams that tells him not to forget their deal. That's not what it sounded like at all. Nope, but that's my version. Mm-hmm. Scanlan looks around for Pike, who is still present, although her image is slightly diminished while she sleeps. When she comes to consciousness, it flares up again. As Keyleth wakes up, she feels a cold sensation within her body, and she cannot seem to make herself warm no matter what she does. Her hands are shaking and her teeth are chattering. Vexalia suggests that they have a feast before they get going. Scanlan can't agree, but the druid says if she can give the party a hero's feast, she will not be able to cast Sunbeam later. You know, Sunbeam being the thing that's really useful for killing vampires. It is. As they discuss this, Vax goes over to Grog and wipes the drawing off his forehead before he can notice. Grog is upset with the physical contact, and he leans over to Vex and asks how he looks. Uh, She asks him because he looks lovely and pats on the cheek. (laughs) Scanlan asks how they're supposed to signal the rest of town from the tunnel. Vex points out that they can just open up the entrance again and have Keyleth skywrite the signal. Scanlan proposes sending Pike to lead the rebels, since she might not be with them for much longer. Vex quickly shoots the idea down, insisting that Pike stays with the party. 
Taking one of the fancy chalices from Keyleth Pike prepares a hero's future Fox Machina, and they all gather around the conjured table and dig in, thus leaving Keyleth to continue using her sunbeam, her able to continue being able to use sunbeam. With Grog's help, Keyleth removes some of the rocks blocking the opening of the tunnel and leans out. It's no longer raining, but the sky is still cloudy. She uses her skyrite spell to darken some of the clouds and shape them into the Dorolo crest. Two minutes later, small beacons of light begin to ignite within the city as lanterns and torches are lit. The remaining members of the White Sun Rebellion are preparing to attack. Um, Scalin gives a heartwarming speech, and they all raise their glasses and drink. Our range of the Hero's Feast sinks back into the dirt, leaving the tunnel empty. They rebarricade the entrance and begin heading down the tunnel. Vax taking point, Keyleth lights the path of the flaming hands, even though only one of only two of them need light. I mean, that is two of them, though. It is two of them. Yes. Like, I know, and that's something that I actually kind of appreciate because. So, there is a tendency for D&D groups to be like, well, okay, we're going down into the Underdark. We have two elves, a dwarf, and a human. We will mostly be fine, and if something bad happens, then I, I can cast the lights, or I can do something. But let's not worry about it until then. And I always imagine that one fucking human maneuvering their way blindly through. Can you imagine how terrified of an experience that is? Oh, yeah. After a while, you get used to it. No, you don't. No, you no. really don't. Cap, like, underground is not something where, like, it's not like going into a dark house where eventually your eyes adjust. There is literally no light. Your me, eyes can't adjust rephrase. to something that doesn't exist. Let Sorry, me rephrase. After a while, I get used to it. Not yeah. being able to see, but used to not being able to see. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. I would assume. No, yeah, there there are definitely individuals who would be able to to psychologically muscle their way around that sort of thing. But for the vast majority of people, like there is there is legitimate psychological trauma that can occur, and frequently on a regular basis does occur by long-term light deprivation you start especially, to lose time you start to yeah mm -hmm. especially when you are actively heading into a hostile environment that will <laughs> literally try to kill you at any opportunity mm -hmm. yeah yeah being yeah and if you if you're going to take human psychology to its logical extent there are very few people that would not be reduced to a gibbering yeah. wreck within the first four or five days. It's a, it, it is a nice touch to character and to, to sort of psychological realism that I always appreciate when, yes. when, when a party will take a tactical disadvantage like that, because well, it kind of makes sense. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It certainly does. I was just thinking that maybe one of the people that couldn't see would be holding a torch. Yeah. <laughs> rather than, you know, <laughs> uh, rather than make Keyleth a constant fire hazard. <laughs> Not that she isn't already a constant fire hazard, but <laughs> I mean, she's... that's a discussion for another day. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many meta levels to that comment. I can't, even... <laughs> I just can't even. 
They eventually reach the wall where Vax had stopped the previous night. It's made of roughly chiseled stone. It's about a foot thick. There is also some sort of statue depicting an armored soldier, which Percy recognizes as being carved from the Whitestone mine in the region. He also recognizes the area's tunnel and knows that the statue is used to hide the exit. Grog suggests that someone should check and make sure that it's just a statue. Keith goes up to it and inspects it, and she says there's a very faint magical aura from the statue, but there's no specific spell or enchantment about it, actually, just the magic from the stone itself. Grog pulls the statue out of the way, or tries to throw, pull the statue out of the way, um, and immediately feels a painful pop as he throws his back out. Because <laughs> it's heavy. Um, and sometimes you do it wrong. <laughs> he slides down to the floor and says that he doesn't want to take all the glory, so maybe somebody else should try it. Uh, Vex calls over Trinket, who puts his butt against the statue and begins backing into it, but also is unable to move it. Uh, amused and frustrated by their frequent failings to open the doors in Whitestone, the twins, Keyleth, Percy, Scanlan, all try pushing the statue together. Unfortunately, their combined strength is not enough to force it past the clutter on the other side. Vax. Vax is impressed by Keyleth's biceps, though. Pike steps forward, sets her shield to the side, and puts her mace down. Closes her eyes, places her hands on the statue, and pushes. The statue begins moving, and she begins to shove it six feet ahead, clearing a walkway in the basement area of the castle. I forget what about it. Was it just a raw strength check to just let her do that, or what? I think I think it was just a series, very long protracted series of failed athletics checks, yes. Yeah. I know for everybody else it was. I was trying to make it it's like Pike just eventually made the correct role or whatever. I think so, yeah. Anyway, I couldn't yeah, remember she doesn't, she doesn't have like some of the stuff she gets later that really amps her, her physical strength up, I don't think. But yeah, she just she just managed to <laughs> to have the right dice roll for once. Vasky is a known cleric of fist bump and puts his hood up, heading into the next room and check it out. Trinket begins massaging Grog's back uh, and even sorry. Trinket begins massaging Grog's back. Even with the noise made by Grog, Vax manages to successfully stealth into the room. It is dark, with one sconce giving off a flickering light. There are two paths, one to the right and one to the left, that curve out of sight. Directly across from Vax's central area, and all I can see here are a series of bars and cells arranged along the walls. This is apparently the subterranean Whitestone Dungeon. Uh-huh. Um, Starting in the basement. Work your ways up. <clears throat> yep. Back in the storage room, Keyleth and Vax, uh, Vax look around to see if there's anything good. Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of work materials, pickaxes, crowbars, etc. But there are a few crates that have residual bits of whitestone, although most of it seems to have been taken elsewhere. They pick up a few tiny pieces of whitestone and gather a bit of the dust. Vax begins to move forward as he hears Keyleth and Vax opening crates, and he he cringes at the noise. But then a crackly and dry voice echoes from one corner: "Hello, is someone there?" Vax stops moving completely and waits. After a moment, the voice hesitantly asks, says hello again, and then there is silence. Vax slowly backs up, then goes to the edge of the corner and listens. He hears a body shifting against hay or some sort of bedding in the clink of sh- and shift of metal. Vax goes back to the rest of the group, where Vax is still shifting crates about. Her brother quickly tells her to stop, and then describes the area up ahead. Percy confirms this is the dungeon, as this is where he woke up after the Briarwoods took over, although Vax had figured that out for himself. He tells them... So here's a question I have. Yes? So, generally, there's a fairly open-ended uh, sort of player reaction allowance in most tabletop RPGs. You know, you present them with a situation, and then the sort of standard MO is, how do the players react? How do the players react? Leave that up to the players. 
There will be times, however, at least I have found frequently in mine, where you want the players to at least be thinking of reacting in a certain way, either because you're trying to protect them from their own impulse control issues, uh, or you want them to think things are a certain way so that you can eventually yank the rug out from under their feet. So here, I think we're seeing, because a lot of, of parties would fall on one of two sort of ends of the gradient in a situation like this. You're invading a hostile uh, territory. You show up in the dungeon. You hear somebody who sounds like they're kind of locked up. A lot of parties I know would immediately be like, aha, another victim of the villains. They must be on our side. We will, you know, rescue them and help them. And we are, you know, here to, you know, rescue people and, and that sort of thing. However, Vox Machina in this situation is reacting in a very different way where they immediately freeze, get very defensive, start going, you know, and there's there's just this constant low-grade low mistrust of everything they encounter. How would you recommend arranging circumstances so a party might be more inclined to choose one of those default reactions to whatever they're going to encounter over the other? Mm-hmm. I mean, depends on how they've reacted to things. Like, like you, 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 yeah. you set them up with other things previously. Mm-hmm. Like, if you want your party to be more trusting, then like have them encounter <laughs> a series of things where either they don't trust something and it turns out they should have, or they do trust something and they're rewarded for that, leading up to it. If you want if them to you be untrusted. If you want your party to be trusting, do not have any member of Final Show Films crew as a DM. <laughs> because really we will teach either. them the folly of that trust. I don't know what you're talking about. There was a perfectly fine village where everything was fine. <laughs> when was this? <laughs> this was early. That's sarcasm. This was earlier in Grand Terra Rebirth. They found a village where everything was fine, and then they tried to cure the fact that everything was fine and killed a man. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, if you don't, if you want them to not trust it, then yeah, you just set up. You continually set up circumstances where whatever they do, they're going to fuck something up, and that makes them very paranoid. Where no play, no PC, no NPC is to be trusted. Yeah. You make a world of darkness game, or you, or um, or in D anD D, you just make a guy who just happens to have smoldering yellow eyes for some reason. <laughs> but in all seriousness, um, I mean, as a as, when we're talking about role playing game, it's all about knowing your players. Uh, mm-hmm. Is basically, I think, what the point is. Um, knowing your players and knowing what your players are, because we can talk all we want about out of character and in character knowledge and, 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 and and that sort of thing and separating how your character reacts from how you react to something. But let's face it, when you, if you encounter something that makes you as a player suspicious, it's really hard not to have your character suspicious. Yeah. Um, so it's about knowing what will make them suspicious, what won't, and then insert setting things up as appropriate. 
Um, which again, it, it also works narratively as well. Uh, if you're talking about uh, a narrative fiction, uh-huh. yes, your audience is much bigger than than six people sitting around a table, but you know the general audience for the for a genre you're writing for. If you are writing for a a a a, a horror film, it's going to be much different then the setup is going to be much different than if you're writing. Well, it actually won't be that much different, but <laughs> then if you're writing for a young adult romance, um, or if you're writing for a romantic comedy, that's targeting uh, like an R rated romantic comedy um, or so like a, a... <laughs> yes, like Deadpool. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. Um, or if you're writing for a period drama, you know, the audience is for those. Yes, exactly. Like that. (laughs) The audiences for those are all very, very different. And you know, like Deadpool. (laughs) Thank God for the rule of threes. That joke is over and we can finally move on. Um, Like Deadpool. But yes, yeah, so you you are aware of what the fuck was I even talking about? Period pieces. <laughs> yeah, so, so you are aware and knowing of, your audience for knowing by, your audience. Yeah. You know, audience come to expect certain conventions and certain genres, and obviously, you know demographics are millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of dollars spent into doing research of of which pe- what, what type of people go to see certain kinds of movies or read certain kinds of books or watch certain TV shows. Huh. Um, so you know that when you set up a particular genre thing, your audience is savvy and they're going to know what's going on with it. So if you insert, if you play with that, and in a a a, uh, um, a a supernatural television show, if you insert a vampire character, but one who who regrets the fact that they're a vampire, etc., your audience is going to be predisposed to trust that character against yes. their better judgment and all logic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can set that up to where they're going to be predisposed to like that certain person, um, yeah. or I could go on and on, but you get the idea. That's how you set those things up. And in you the case of here, folks, and, and in the case of Vox Machina, they've been burned by their trust before. Yep, frequently. Mm-hmm. So. That's, you know, uh, this is something that's been set up previously. Anyways. Yeah. Yeah. We have a lot left to cover and not a lot of time left to do it in, so. Let's burn through this. Mm. Yeah, we really don't have that much to cover, but yeah. Vax goes back to the rest of the group where Vax is still shooting through crates, where the crystals are stopped. Parsi confirms his dungeons where he woke up with previously. As I discussed what happens, Parsi begins to walk to a cell. Vax, <laughs> Vax quickly casts past without a trace. The rest of the party follows after him. <laughs> 
Percy goes sure down thing, the- Brad Pitt from Snatch. <laughs> <laughs> Percy goes down the left hallway. I was going to say Eminem from Rap God, but that works too. <laughs> Percy goes down the left hallway looking for the cell that has been his, that had been his, which is also the direction the voice came from. There is a single lit torch sconce near the farthest, near the furthest cell on the outer wall. By the way, I have been able to successfully make it through Eminem's uh, Rap God uh, before. Um... Uh, inside that cell, squatting on the ground, is a woman with her back up against the bars. Vax draws out one of his daggers just in case, because he's going to stab this prisoner in the back. Uh, Scanlan gets her attention with a hiss. As, as he should have. The woman turns her face and they see she is, much, she is a much older woman, probably in her early 70s and looking like she's had a hard life. She squints through the darkness looking around. Scanlan tells her to keep her voice down if she wants to get out. She agrees and asks who they are. Vex asks who she is. The woman asks again who they are, very nervous about the voices she can hear but can't see. Vax gives Scanlan his flame tongue dagger again and pushes him forward. A gnome smiles and tells the woman that they're friendly and here to get her out. She asks who, he asks who she is, and the woman intercepts her as Gloria Sin. The woman asks how they got into the dungeon. Scanlan tells her that they, they are ninjas, which only confuses her. Uh, <laughs> so, there's something I need to say here, uh-huh. which is... This is again back to expectations in genre genre stuff. Naming conventions. Yeah. If your character, if your NPC's last name in a genre piece, fantasy, horror, sci-fi, whatever, whatever, is some sort of sin, is some sort of 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 homonym, Homophone? for example, of yeah. sin. They are not going to be predisposed towards <laughs> trusting, and I don't think that was intentional in this. Case. I, I, I don't think I don't think there was an intent to have this character ever be trusted. I should say this is not like a Matt did a Matt, Matt fucked up here. Um, yeah. I, I, in fact, I think it was I think it was a slight sort of sort of nod to what eventually came, mm-hmm. like what was learned very soon after but i love i don't like names that are puns necessarily uh and there is a little bit of a pun here but i do like names that are uh, that are thematic some people feel like it's over the top and it certainly can be over the top if your character's name is 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 grimlord von skull face or you know if you do it poorly but if you do it well Kilgrave. i think the kind of thing Kilgrave. um <laughs> although I, I do love how 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 gloriously they lampshade that yes, um yes. but it, names is is just a good example of don't do in my opinion if you have just done something made any creative choice because uh, out of out of randomness you're doing it wrong. <clears throat> yeah have a have a if you're going especially if you're going thematic but even if you're not going thematic have a reason for calling things what you call them mm-hmm. and especially characters i would say it goes double for characters yep um you know whether or not you're trying to make an overt reference or not most of the time in a, in a functional, intentional society, which most societies are, 
things are called what they're called for a reason. There's etymology, there's linguistic development, there's backstory, and there's history to why we say things and call things what we do. Um, you know, and some of it's good and some of it's bad. And there's things that translate from culture to culture and there's things that do not, um, nearly as well, but there's, there's pretty much always a reason. So don't neglect that in your writing. Yeah. Take the, take the five minutes to, to find, or at least, and, and you don't have to just come up with it wholesale right away. You can always have a placeholder name for a character, but make a note of this is what this character is and symbolizes. This is the kind of name. And then, you know, take the, take the 30 minutes to go and research that before you, you put your finished product out there. And and make sure things are called what they should be called. Yeah. Yes. In narr- in, in narrative storytelling <clears throat> and in film, when you're writing a character, they don't have the they don't have the uh, real world limitation of being named what their parents named named yeah. them. No, that's how you get stuff like Zygmunt Stella Pulvis. <laughs> exactly. Yep. And to be clear, when you're in a in in a, in a role playing game setting. Sometimes you have to create NPCs on the fly, and you don't really have much of an option other than to come up with a to go to fantasy name generators. His name and is Max. Come up with a random bullshit name. That's um, why Walking Shadow has two Simons in it. Yep. <laughs> his name is um, his, his name is Max. What is he? He's a dragon. Fuck. <laughs> Max Mac, Max and Dantilus. There we go. Max and Dantilus. Yep. Yep. Um, <laughs> Max for short. Okay. Okay. Got it. <laughs> so yeah, don't like if if you throw in a random NPC because your party has gone to the the magic shop that, or gone to wander around the city. You didn't expect them to wander around and need an NPC for him. Don't put your party on hold for like five minutes while you try to come up with an appropriate name. Parandon. Oh yeah. No. And yeah. Uh, Parandon was an established name. I know. Thank you very I know. much. I know. Right. Yeah. But yeah, no, uh, another recommendation real quick is, you know, yeah. If you're starting a new campaign, take a day to come up with NPC names, make a list yep. of primary races, come up with just, just 20 names, you know, and easy ways to do it are like, okay, all halflings have like old Germanic names, go to some name website, look up ones that are old and Germanic, get some, get some of various genders, uh, affiliations if you want, or just grab them at random, but have 20 halfling names so that the next time somebody has to meet a halfling that you weren't expecting, they have a thematically appropriate name to go with the rest of your setting so that you're though, behind the name.com. Though some, yes, though, though, some, though some of the best NPCs are ones that you come up with in a panic and name them Fred. Sometimes that, oh yeah. Right, that yeah. is true. And, you know, right. and it's fun. So I love, uh, naming NPCs are one of my absolute favorite things to do. Um, so I do have, I have feelings about this. Um, but like it established like some early rules for, and you know, a lot of them fall very, very, uh, we're playing D and D or we're playing, you know, fantasy stuff. So we're talking about characters who have established naming styles. Elves are going to have lots of vowels and soft sound. And sound kind um, of Tolkien-ish most of them. And sound kind of Tolkien-ish. 
Um, Lots of good hard consonants and maybe one or two syllables for the dwarves, you know, things like that. Yeah, exactly. But don't be afraid to change that up for your world and just make sure that you make that, make that clear to your care to your players. So you don't have this entire world where like dwarves actually have a, let's say a, uh, a more Eastern bent to their name. And then your, 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 uh, your, your party's dwarven cleric is, is, um, Dunstan. Right. You know, they, Where, they know whereas what... most of the other dwarves sound like they came out of the, the, the high samurai age of Japan, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but this one's name is Dunstan. Now, if you're going for that, make sure that Dunstan was adopted by another culture at a very right. young age. <laughs> right. No, and there are ways that that can definitely work. But the whole point of, 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 of me going off on this was... If you establish those rules off the bat, it's so much easier to come up with names. So, like, gnomish names. I love the idea of gnomes with three alliterative names. Mm-hmm. It's hilarious every time. And it gives, it's, it tells you something immediately about the race in my game. Yeah. Um, and if and once I do that, I can pop off three random random fantasy sounding names that start with the same letter really quick, and then that's that's a realistic sounding name that you came up with right off the fly that fits in your setting. <clears throat> Little preparation with this stuff goes so so far. Yeah, solid. So. Gloria Sin. Um, the, the the party talks with her for a bit uh, and determines uh, and is sort of finding out why she's been locked up and what she's doing there. Uh, she apparently traveled from Drina, another village somewhere in the land, uh, to ask why the waters had grown brackish, killing all the fish and causing the things of ash. And she says that Delilah laughed and threw her in the dungeons, saying that she'd make a better offer than a fisherman, a better offering than a fisherman. Uh, she says that she's been in the cell for about a week. Uh, they ask her about the encounter. Um, they, they 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 sort of they go back and forth a little bit, uh, determining that it's probably safer for her just to stay in there. And they begin asking her about the the about what she saw when she entered the castle. She was she was brought to the main chamber to speak with the Lord and Lady. She waited there for about an hour. Um, the discussion was very brief. They laughed and threw her in a dungeon. She describes how many how many guards there were, where they were. There were several dozen undead creatures in the courtyard. Um, and she says that someone comes down to feed her every few days, but only enough to keep her alive. Vax takes out some rations and a water skin and tosses them to the bars. They spend a few moments uh, telling her to stay there safely. She pleads with them to let her out. This goes back and forth until Grog basically says, if you don't stop making noise, we'll make sure you stop making noise. Which silences her. Because, you know, Grog's a people person like that. Yeah. yeah. Um... Then Grog uh, asks. Then, then a couple of them uh, get it in their heads to make to to make sure that she actually eats the food uh, that they gave her, which she does take a bite of. And then Grog, uh, P- uh, uh, Pike tries to cut her hand and fails because her ethereal form can't do that and any blood. Uh, Grog cuts his hand and holds the bleeding hand out to see if she's a vampire. It's evident that she isn't. Um, and sort of as a as a as a uh, to put on a show of trying to help, uh, uh, Vex tr- pretends to try and pick the lock. 
at which point the woman runs out, grabs her hands, and tries to help her fix it. Vex purposely snaps the snaps the lockpick, jamming the lock, and the woman angrily reprimands her. And at this point, Vex realizes that when the woman placed her hands on hers to help with the lock, she only felt one hand. And Marisha does the one time I think that she really did fuck up as a as a player. <laughs> <laughs> What'd she do? Oh my god, it's Ripley. Oh my god, it's Ripley. And that's where it ended. <laughs> well, and to be fair, she was saying that out loud. She wasn't saying, like, yes. like out of character, not in character. <laughs> no, right. but still, like, oh, that was one of those few times I was like, God damn it, Marisha! <laughs> I think because it was fine. It, it was fine. Overall, it was fine. But it's one of those moments where... As a DM, I'm always like, I'm trying to build up a mystery and then, you know, for for like a certain side group that's there. And then suddenly somebody who's not there in the scene is like, oh, that's that. And I'm like, look, he's like, throw at them. Yeah, yeah, because you're like you're, I can you're, I can certainly see that. For for me though, for me at least though, I find that there there is a certain level of contagious enjoyment. Um, yeah, and when oh, when yeah. mm-hmm. it's that moment of where one person figures it out two seconds ahead of the others, and then everyone figures, you know, sort of like they say something, and then it clicks for everybody else, and it's sort of this cascading failure of of oh that. Um, I find especially when it when it sort of ends at a really nice moment like this did right here. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I I I personally don't mind that. Uh, it it was definitely mitigated by the fact that Marisha's reaction is exactly the kind of reaction you want. Yeah. Um it, it is just this one moment I was like, "Oh, come on." <laughs> but yeah. So, that was Against the Tide of Bone. Uh, and yep. next week we come back with... <laughs> next week, Hopefully. air quotes. Next week, air quotes. <laughs> next, <laughs> next time. Next time. I mean, I think our with... listeners know that when we say next week on this podcast, we mean... We generally mean within three months. Hmm? With, yeah, within the next three months or so. Uh, next time we come back with uh, Reunions Part 1. Actually, no. Sorry, not reunion part one. Just reunion. I keep forgetting that the the little um that the the old YouTube uh the old YouTube title cards had like part one at the front because yep. they separated the breaks to be because part one and part yeah. two. Mm-hmm. Anyways, mm-hmm. next time it's reunions. So yep, we'll see you all next time. Say goodbye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye. Goodbye. <laughs>